Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 38 of the National Security Law Podcast, brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Episode 38. Who's, who's is Kurt Schilling 38? Uh, you know, I can't think of a, a famous one on 38, but I can think of lots of topics for us to talk about today. For example, there is still an a publicly unidentified uh, American citizen held in, as an enemy combatant somewhere in Iraq or Syria. Or at least that's the report we had about, what, 10 days ago, Steve? Uh, I, I mean, I think the, the, the report was he turned himself in. He surrendered to SDF forces two weeks ago yesterday. So this is day 15. All right. So we'll talk more about that. And then from there, what will be our second topic? So I think we have to talk about Puerto Rico. Um, there's not a lot of, I think, legal stuff to say about Puerto Rico. But I think there are just two quick notes I want to make. One about the Jones Act, which was all over Twitter yeah, the last 24 hours. The um, statute that's sinking Puerto Rico. Seriously. Um, and then what about, I think, actually a more interesting, more relevant national security topic, which is the Insurrection Act. And exactly what powers the president has to actually use the military in circumstances like these. This is the uh, statute that was enacted after Star Trek Insurrection? Uh, oh, gosh. That would have been bad. Star- uh, th- that statute would have, I think, said uh, no more Star Trek movies ever. <laughs> so speaking of Star Trek, we'll talk more about that later. After we talk about Puerto Rico and the Insurrection Act, um, we'll pivot to the news about uh, the Trump admi- the latest news on the Trump administration's potential change to the so-called PPG, the Presidential Policy Guidance, which is uh, drones d- rules f- rules for the use of lethal force, uh, whether <laughs> through an unmanned aerial aerial vehicle or otherwise. But uh, often just referred to as the drone playbook, right? Or the- um, well, and and you know, I think I mean I think it's really important, Bobby, that we spend some time fleshing out exactly what has changed in these rules because I yeah. think you know it got some media attention last week, but in this news cycle, it's easy to lose track of the stories that are only getting reported once, or as in the case of the American citizen, apparently not gaining media That's interest right. at all. So we'll, we'll dive deep into that, and then we'll uh, pivot over to, uh, what, what, why we're, to, to why we're recording on a Wednesday this week. Yeah, why not Tuesday? Because you were busy on Tuesday. You Celebrating were... my birthday. Happy birthday, Steve. <laughs> the, the Senate Judiciary Committee threw me a birthday party. <laughs> that is the best. Um, so listeners, uh, give Steve a happy birthday eh, shout out. Whatever. And, um, I'm and old. The, and the Senator- speaking, of, speaking of 38. Oh, 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 is that? I should have thought, I should have, why didn't I, you know, I should have said, episode 38, hey, 38. We could, we could stop the recording right here and start over. We never do that. That's true. All right, then, there you go. <laughs> All right, uh, so we're going to talk about yesterday's Senate hearing on the two bills to in, uh, to insulate special counsel Bob Mueller from being fired without good cause. I actually thought it was a really interesting hearing. A couple takeaways I want to share with, with you, Bobby, and with our audience. Um, finally, there are some travel ban developments it's almost like the cases might now be moot. I wonder if only somebody had forecasted you know, that. No, that happen. really would have been useful. Yeah. Um, and in the remaining time, once all of our listeners have left for better places and devices, um, we're going to talk about the series premiere of Star Trek Discovery. Or at least you will, since I managed not to see it. But I can't wait to hear about it, and then I'll decide whether I'm going to watch. Whether it you're going to fork out the money to subscribe to well, CBS I, I, All I Access. I did notice, of course, you can watch for free uh, the for one week. So. Uh, oh, so you can get in the the two part premiere yeah. and nothing else. Yeah, I wonder how long they'll keep that open because if I wait long enough, maybe I could just binge the whole thing. <laughs> uh, and then, last but not least, we have some some. I, it's not really sports frivolity, but you and I have some views about, especially this NCAA corruption news. Um, well, it's certainly fun to talk about. Yep, Dwayne Wade signing with the with the Cavs. Also fun to talk about. Um, are are they a super team? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Answer: No. No. But they have one super player. You bum. 
<laughs> so, anyways, uh, lots of stuff to talk about on this on this Wednesday, September twenty eighth. Okay, well, let's let's dive right in. Dive with in. What we what we began with, which is the news. You know, now ten days gone of a U.S. citizen who was captured fighting, uh, captured by SDF forces in Syria, allegedly fighting. Right. So the claim is that he was fighting for the Islamic State. He was turned over to the United States, and there was an, a public acknowledgement that. He, yeah, I think it's he. They didn't. They didn't specify that though. Uh, he or she the, is being. The assumptions are certainly gendered. There, yeah, everyone's assuming he, but there are certainly uh, could be a woman for sure. This person is held in U.S. custody as an enemy combatant, or at least that's the way it's originally reported and acknowledged. And I think both of us expected that sometime within the ten-day period, there would, you know, there would be constant media attention on this one, and that eventually you'd start hearing what Some is the kind disposition of press release from DOD. Yeah, just what's the deal going to be? And in fact, it's been radio silence. I radio. Mean, I mean, not just radio silence. I mean, like you know. People, I mean, like you've tweeted about it. I've tweeted about it. You know, Matt has tweeted. Matt Tate has tweeted about it. Like, you know, it's not as if no one's talking about it, but there's just no uh, either the media isn't pushing the government for information, or the government has just been a, a sort of completely closed, you know, wall yeah. on this. Well, yeah, I will say, and, and I, I do think there's there are obviously some journalists who are on this. Uh, right, Spencer Ackerman, first and foremost. Yeah, no, there there are more than a few, but uh, the ones who were at the most recent. Uh, publicly reported presser with uh, DOD reps talking about the latest developments on the ground right. in Iraq and Syria, uh, there weren't any, there were lots of questions about the Russians and, and of course a lot of very important things were being talked about. No one asked about, by the way, what's the latest on that citizen? So we, we need people to ask about this. Now, um, it it's interesting to ponder what this would look like if tomorrow they announced this person is being flown into, say, Eastern District of Virginia for to face indictment, and we see that what this was is what many of us speculated it would be on the front end. That is a, a short-term period of military detention, uh, pre-Miranda warnings and all the rest, followed by a prosecutorial process. Um, if in the interim we didn't know what was going on, but that's what ends up happening, Steve, uh, anything inherently wrong or anything illegal about that? So it's, uh, you know. Well, we don't like it because we want to know. But, no, 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 but no, no. that's I, not necessarily wrong. I mean, we've talked about this on the podcast before, but just to remind everyone, right? I mean, the the model has been, especially during the Obama administration, in the, in the small handful of cases of overseas captures, right? Some period of short-term military detention, then a clean team comes in, right? And it starts yep. as, as a pure criminal case. This is what Judge Cooper ruled on last month in the Abu Qatala case, right, yep. for Libya, for, uh, from, from the Benghazi suspect. Um, the one wild card to me is that this is a citizen. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I don't think there are obvious reasons why doing the same model to a citizen is unconstitutional when it wouldn't be when it would be constitutional for a citizen. But man, I mean, with every day that passes, the legal arguments get a little bit harder for the administration. There's no question. There's a spectrum of difficulty that increases. There's there's With no time. there's no bright line where someone can say, ah, oh, well, right on day seventeen. Yeah, the hybrid model is okay, but only for sixteen days, three hours, and seventeen minutes. Right? That's that. There's no clear point. Clearly, it just the pressure mounts, and the and the risk that is being taken in terms of what might happen on the back end gets more complicated. Now, there's got to be a limit somewhere, right? The hybrid model can't be seventeen years of no acknowledgement, no review, military detention, followed by the prosecution. Wait, this but is where, where I argued for. Wait, 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 wait. Uh, am I stealing your lines? Wait a minute. What script am I reading from? Steve's. Oh, I had your script. 
Grimm. Like four or five episodes ago, episodes ago, we had a whole fight about this where you said no, no, no. Like as long as both. I didn't say seventeen years was okay. So 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 for but, no, but no, four years is okay. No, you're 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 hearing something I didn't say. I, I'm talking about no acknowledgement, no identification of the person. Okay. No naming of the person. Okay. If the person's detainable as an enemy combatant and otherwise, and and the, so I'm I'm drawing attention to the publicity and transparency of the thing. Whereas I'm saying the underlying the, legality is still yeah. the, the the elephant in the room. But I agree with you that you know the underlying legality if if there's no if you do have the ability and intention to prosecute and you just decide well we're just going to wait 17 years of course at some point this begins to become more problematic and there's a hard line to draw in there somewhere although the question is where is the which doctrine draws the line and where does it draw it indeed um and so that's should, and it's like really far from clear someone should write a cardozo law review article about that um <laughs> somebody should but but here's the thing though I, I think again this is why the fact that it's an american citizen changes the calculus right because the because the underlying detention authority question is, as we discussed last week, in my view, at least somewhat closer um, for an American citizen fighting even for ISIS, right, than for a non-citizen with no prior connection to the U.S., that puts so much more pressure on the concern that this pre-indictment period, assuming that we're heading toward an indictment, yeah. is actually a pretext for some kind of manipulation, Right, because if, in the context of Warsame and Al Libby and Abu Qatala, right, in those cases, I think you and I, I don't know about anybody else, were much more comfortable with the initial military detention. Right yeah. here, if there's reasonable grounds to debate the legality of the initial detention, even if those grounds are because he's an American citizen, not because he's ISIS, right. right, I think that complicates and puts that much more pressure on each additional day when one, we don't know who he is. Two, we don't know where he is. And three, we don't know how long he's being held in these conditions before this, we all assume, impending criminal proceeding. I, I definitely agree in the principle that it gets harder every day and that the level of difficulty starts off harder because it's a citizen and therefore the detainability question is more is notably more contested. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily wrong. In fact, I don't think it's wrong. But it's much more obviously contestable and there's more room for reasonable disagreement. Um, I think that we, we've seen some signs. I think there have been a few quotes from a few of the uh, interest groups saying they're trying to get information, that they're prepared if they can find the relative to authorize them to bring the, the habeas petition, that they're prepared to do that. Uh, I, I suspect – here, so here's – let's go pure speculative. Uh, <laughs> option or possibility one. Um, there's, Indians in five. The, Sorry. the Indians in five over who? Uh, it doesn't matter. Diamondbacks. Diamondbacks. <laughs> okay. I'm sorry. I thought we were speculating. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So other speculation. One possibility is that the administration is in fact planning to indict this person, um, but they're they're just you know maybe they're having productive interrogations right now, and they're going to push this until it begins to become clear that there's there's a real political cost to pushing it further or potentially a legal cost, which is one reason why it matters whether there's a drumbeat of inquiry and criticism. But then why not name them? Uh, right. Well, as soon as you name the person, then you have litigation and a court is overseeing the possibility, right? So they lose. That's why they don't name them, right? That you lose. First and foremost, you increase the chances of judicial involvement. It's going to be quicker whenever it comes if there's a name and therefore somebody who's authorized to represent. Um, secondly, in, in fairness, there there may be intelligence value in, in not having it known who the particular person captured was. If we if we imagine this was a particularly important person or someone for whom there's reason to think there's a, there's a larger network this person could help unwind, and it's not obvious to the other side that we've got the person, there could be sound security reasons not to have gone public with the name as well. So, I I don't know what to do with the second the second the, your second argument strikes me as a legitimate reason to keep the name secret. Um, delaying judicial review to which a U.S. citizen is constantly 
constitutionally entitled does not strike me as a legitimate reason to keep his name secret, right? So, you know, I mean, it seems to me even a statement from DOD saying we are not really, we acknowledge that we have a U.S. citizen in custody and we are not releasing his identity because of all the things you just said, right, right would be an improvement over the status quo. Right. That So I, it's interesting because on one hand, uh, it can't be the case that the moment you find out the person you held is a U.S. citizen, you must issue a press release, True. right? So there's got to be some window. I agree. And then the question is, well, how long? And is is ten days within that window? If we knew, if, if this was a year from now, and we knew that on the on the twelfth day he was brought in, and so there was we're this, pa- we're past day twelve. Yeah, yeah. Well, we don't, we don't know if we are right because he was in SDF custody, but we don't know when he came into U.S. I custody. think it was no later than um, that third, the fourteenth. Right. We'll take whatever the number is. I'm just messing with yeah, you. Yeah. yeah. Add, add plus one. <laughs> if we knew that that's all it was, I don't think people would say like you know the real problem here is that they didn't go right. public right. within that two week period. Um, the problem we have right now is we don't know if we're in like a the very end of this initial hybrid model or period, the beginning. Or, or indeed, is this going to be sort of a Padilla-like situation where they're going to say, no, we're just going to, this isn't a hybrid model. There's right. no prosecution. We're holding this person. Now, keep in mind, though, I mean, so I'm, I'm glad you brought up Jose Padilla, right? So in Padilla's case, um, Padilla was already in criminal custody when they decided he was being held under a material witness warrant issued, ironically enough, by then Chief Judge Michael McCasey, McCasey. Yeah, yeah. right? Um, when the government decided to transfer him to uh, military detention, perhaps not so ironically, right, the day before they were due to present him before Mukasey. To Mukasey, yeah. Right, it, was when, it was when they, because with the material witness warrant, of course, it's not actually just a detention warrant. It's preserving the testimony. And at a certain point, either put the person before the grand jury to testify or take a deposition, right. but you can't just leave them there. And right. Mukasey was sensitive to that. Well, Mukasey was, the government wasn't. But anyway, leaving Indeed. that aside, right? But so the day, right, that Padilla is transferred to military detention, John Ashcroft has this big press conference from Moscow. From Moscow. Right? Um, so we knew that right away, right? We didn't know Hamdi right away, but we knew it pretty quickly, right? So I, I'm with you. I mean, I, yeah. I don't know where we are, but I find it very odd that we've gotten to where that that we've even gotten to this point and still have both the information vacuum and the apparent lack of interest at least on the part of the Pentagon press corps if not you yeah. know the media writ large well so so uh Possibility one is that we're actually uh, in a situation where they're waiting to see how long they can get away with this before the pressure mounts, and then they'll indict and move the person into the public sphere. A possibility two is this person is actually cooperating. Right. So consider the possibility that this person, once in U.S. custody, yeah, yeah. made clear that you know maybe they regretted what was going on. Who yeah, knows? Yeah. Um, in how which can case, I help you? They may they may actually be waiving all sorts of rights, and this maybe. person's in a sort of a this sort of outside the hybrid model altogether because they've already become fully cooperative. And yeah, maybe. Yeah. And but, but we just we'll don't see. know. No, we don't know. So I guess stay tuned. But you know what's funny, that second possibility, yeah. not funny, but what's interesting about the second possibility is if that's what's going on, that very much, depending on the nature of the cooperation, it really increases the incentive on the government's part not to name this person. True. Depending on who it is and what other people may think then is It was told. actually like a senior dude or is it just some like, you who know. Knows? yeah. Wandering. Or is it just some some schmo that, you know, got into this terribly stupid situation exactly. and made a huge mistake? All right, so speaking of terribly stupid situations and huge mistakes. <laughs> that opens the door to a lot. Uh, Puerto Rico. Okay. Yeah, um, that is a terrible situation. It's a terrible situation, and I think we've been making some mistakes. Um, so there's there, words can't describe, right, the humanitarian crisis. Yeah, it's and just, the, it's, 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 if this had been caused through a uh, terrorist attack, and like the grid had been taken down comprehensively like this, and, and also just a mass amount of, of other destruction, um, it would be a transformative event. Um, or if it were a man-made, or imagine, imagine hurricanes that devastate Hawaii. 
Sure. No, if it had happened in, in a state and if it, it happened in, you know, in any place where we pay more attention, it would be treated as, as something all Americans Or where you, maybe they had representation in Congress. But there's no question that because it's happening in territory, it's not getting the same attention on the mainland that it, than anything that affected a state would have. And that's why. So the president has been, you know, what he's been taking some sort of time away from tweeting about the national anthem in the NFL. No. Um, he's been tweeting about how everything's going great in Puerto Rico and fantastic and, and everything's going fantastic and it's wonderful and everything happening and it's all good um and yet i mean i need to say has, wait I, I hadn't actually seen that has he been tweeting saying things are going well yes no, i hadn't seen that but i guess i'm not that shocked yes. that's that's unfortunate so obviously it's it's a real crisis where are the legal issues here so i want to sort of flag two all right so so listen the, the the first most important thing the president does in a natural you know disaster situation is issues a disaster proclamation mm-hmm. and president trump did that i mean that yep. you know that box got the federal away, dollars right under something called the stafford act right there's a, a sta- i think 1972 somewhere something like that right um the stafford act triggers all of this both money and military assistance right and support from the federal government to go in and to help sort of make sure everything's okay that's good um but there are two other statutes that actually i think are relatively important here that haven't been getting talked about that much the first is the jones Act. Um, Twitter and, is all alive about the Jones Act. Yeah, right now. the Jones Act. So um, the Jones Act, I'm going to sort of screw up what the Jones Act really does, but the short version is um, the Jones Act is a constraint um, on foreign ships' transportation of cargo to the United States when the U.S. has the capacity. Right to do this, it's basically it's it's a it's a quasi protectionist measure right. about sort of um, foreign foreign cargo ships versus domestic cargo ships. Okay. Right. Um, the Jones Act restrictions were waived by the federal government during both Hurricane um, Harvey, right, and Irma with regard to Texas, so that so that foreign flag vessels could right. help move oil. Right. Right. Um, the Department of Homeland Security is said yesterday it's not planning to waive federal restrictions on foreign ships transportation of cargo to Puerto Rico. Um, I don't get that. Well, like, the question, uh, is there actually a choke point with American shipping such that that actually matters? If, if there is, obviously, this is ridiculous. So I don't know. Right. So let me just be clear. I don't know the answer to that question. And we should we should, you know, hopefully hear from folks who know more. I will just say that when the president goes on national television, as he did yesterday at his press conference, and says the reason why we're having difficulty is because Puerto Rico is an island in the middle of an ocean. It implies that there's a shipping problem and you might want all the ships involved. So one of two things is true, right? Either the president is full of crap, right? Or there's a problem that the president is, or the president's full of crap. And I would say that, you know, because the waiver was done for for the Port of Houston in particular, uh, and apparently for Florida as well, um, you you ought to just do it here, if only to avoid the, the even distraction. The, even the, and the specter. Yeah, right. The appearance of the appearance of uh, impropriety, if you will, seems like a reason enough to do it. You can revoke it later if it needs to be done, but um, certainly why not just do it to eliminate this this right. problem? I, I don't understand the huge cost to the United States of revoking it temporarily just to make sure that every single resource that yeah. can be brought to bear. So is that this isn't a distraction. If Correct. it is a distraction, now the possibility that it's not just a distraction, but actually is hampering getting relief. Uh, to the to the people of Puerto Rico. Now that's just terrible. If that's the case, yeah, I don't know that I, that's I, and the case. I, I don't know it either, and I, and, yeah. and I, I want to be clear. I'm not suggesting it is, yeah. but this just seems like a stupid thing to get caught up on, and it only feeds the narrative. Right, that Puerto Rico is being neglected because, well, all sorts of possible reasons. So right? because one, um, not represented in Congress; two, mostly Democratic; right; three, um, not white. 
So I, th- I think that uh, the, these are all reasons why, and I, and I don't think that's, you know, those sorts of prejudices are actually driving decision making, but these are great reasons why just do the waiver. Right. Just do it. Right. What, whether they're driving decision making or not. Yeah, because right? some people are going to believe that it is. 100%. Yeah. So that's point number one. Um, point number two, more in the national security law yeah. realm. Um, so, you know, there's this, there's this wonderful sort of important and seldom used old statute called the Insurrection Act. Um, which, you know, <laughs> I, I wrote my student note about. Um, well, well do I recall. One, one day way back when. Um, and, and the Insurrection Act is basically, it, it's statutory authorization for the president to use the military to suppress insurrection, repel invasion, and otherwise execute the laws of the union. Um, the question I have, again, this is based on sort of reports, but I don't know if it's, you know, I don't know how, how, how clearly this is necessary. Um, would it help, right, to deploy the army? To Puerto Rico, right? Would it help to sort of have the army not just doing what it does under the Stafford Act, which is pure disaster relief and pure logistics, but to actually have the army in parts of Puerto Rico that may be very hard to access, right? right for the Puerto Rican local officials, or at the very least, you know, is the poor. Uh, is the Puerto Rico National Guard, right, overwhelmed? Are they in a position to accurate, adequately help local authorities on the ground? Um, why not have a conversation about perhaps deploying the military into Puerto Rico to ensure that every possible resource is being brought to bear? You know, so there's there's a bunch of different functions that the military might be useful for in a disaster situation. One of them, and the one that's most on the surface when we talk about the Insurrection Act, is providing public safety yep. and ensuring preventing looting and, and so forth. And, and, and Or just supplementing law enforcement. Right. No, right. So, But preventing crime or yep. worse from unfolding. I haven't yet seen no, any no. indication that, that that's a, a need that needs to be filled. So what are the other utilities of the military in this situation? It's the logistical capacity, the engineering capacity, the ability to move substantial amounts of food and water on an emergency basis and to do it under secure conditions that won't turn into a riot when you get to a remote area where people are starving or or suffering. Um, I haven't yet seen whether the Puerto Rico National Guard itself is capable of fulfilling some of these needs, but there sure seem to be indications that there are, in fact, areas of Puerto Rico that no one's yet gotten to, no one's heard from, we don't know what's going on. We know that potable water is a is it potable? Portable. portable. I was, I Not portable, but... I thought it was potable. Potable. Whatever it is, that one. Drink, drinkable water. Drinkable water is in sanitary water is is in increasingly short supply. Fuel. And, and fuel is going to be an issue. So when you need to get large numbers of people into a situation of basic security on those measures... I think military. I, I, I definitely... You know, that's the one enterprise that can do it at scale and do it rapidly. We haven't yet taken that step. And of course, there are... We're talking territory, not state, but there are federalism type issues here. I don't know what the posture of Puerto Rican authorities are on requesting that level of of, uh, U.S. sort of, you know, national military intervention. But one can imagine it might really be called for soon, if not not already. And, And, you know, just to put a little bit of historical spin on this, I mean, there's a lot of reluctance on the part of presidents to use the, to, to, to invoke the Insurrection Act. The Stafford Act is easy, right? That's low hanging fruit. Real quick clarification question. Do you have to invoke this Insurrection Act to deploy? Uh, not for law enforcement purposes, but for uh, civilian aid purposes. So no, I mean, right. So so the Stafford Act probably gets you most of the way to the capacities you were just describing. But if there's, any, I mean, again, back to the Jones Act. If there's any question, yeah. right? Like I don't know why, out of an abundance of caution, right? You don't maybe also make an Insurrection Act proclamation just so that there's no red tape, right? And just to ensure, you know, again, this may be, be this may be just based on the scattershot reports that we're seeing in the media, mm-hmm. but. It seems to me that may, that this might be a, a broader reflection of what I think is is 
well-founded, right, institutional reluctance to use the Insurrection Act. Yeah. Um, we haven't, we're in the middle of the longest period in American history without an Insurrection Act proclamation. We haven't had one since May of 1992, when President George H.W. Bush called out the army to help restore um, sort of order, you know, law and order in L.A. after the Rodney King riots. Right. And now some people will be thinking, well, wait a minute, what about Katrina in New Orleans? And of course, there was a whole story there. Was a there whole fight and about it was that. a federalism story. Um, where there was a fight about whether the Bush administration was going to override Governor Blanco. Was Governor Blanco going to, you know, was, was the Louisiana National Guard adequate to the task? Did President Bush need to federalize the guard? Did he need to bring in the army? Right. Um, that was a whole kerfuffle that did not result in an Insurrection Act proclamation. But I want, I want to say, I mean, you said ter- federalism. I, I don't know that the federal, I mean, Puerto Rico is not sovereign, right? Yeah, like, well, which is why I said they're not, right. you know, it's not a state. And so, and so frankly, I mean, I don't, I, you, I, I'm not much of a states' rights person to begin with, right? But especially a federal territory that derives its sovereignty purely from the federal government. Uh, it, sure. And if we're going to be formalist about it, sure, obviously it's weird to talk about federalism there. But as, as a practical matter, yeah. There are huge questions of, of any time the federal government's going to Bigfoot in this way, yeah. um, entrenching on local sensibilities, if, if and this is the thing I don't know, yeah. if the locals don't actually want that type of intervention. Yeah. I mean, so, so one of the awkward things is, I mean, I think what we're seeing from the local officials is, you know, in one conversation they're saying, we're overwhelmed, we need help, you know, we're, we're not being, we're not getting into this, we're not going to that, yeah. right? Like, we're, 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 we're really struggling. Another conversation, but we love President Trump, President Trump's doing a great job, right? Because um, they've realized what I think lots of heads of foreign states right. have realized. Yeah. Send the love. Send the love, right? Send, and yeah. so the, the narrative that's coming out looks a little bit skewed. Well, I, I think that things like this, what really counts at the end of the day is who's going to pay for the vast expenses. And in, in Puerto Rico, it's going to be you know nigh immeasurable expenses. I wonder if that's some of the hesitation, do you think, uh, for the federal government getting involved here, that there's sort of this fiscal fear of, of just how once you get involved, how much on the hook you're going to be for the Maybe. rebuild, but that's not a reason not to do it. I mean, if that's the level of devastation in a part of in a part of the world that is a bunch of American citizens, not just a bunch. I mean, Puerto Rico is bigger than a whole bunch of states. Yeah, I mean, geographically and population wise, it, yeah. it is not. I mean, you know, it is not American Samoa, right? This would be if it were American Samoa, this would be a different conversation. Well, it might also be easier to intervene and, and step in. And so I think the scale is part of what's daunting here. Well, okay, so I guess we've said what we can say now, but watch this space. That could turn into. If we, if we imagine that the potable potable water issue uh, exact is as bad as it seems like it might be, we are soon going to be talking about sanitation issues and illnesses and all kinds of disastrous developments that will put, I think, a huge amount of pressure uh, on both local authorities and the national government to get involved with systemic relief that really only uh, only military force can provide. Completely agree. Completely yeah. agree. So all, all, I mean, I just th- this this is this is increasing like the American citizen story, right? With every day that passes, this is yeah. becoming more of a national security law yeah. conversation. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So watch this space. And, and, and to be clear, let's hope it doesn't turn out that way. Then maybe yeah. maybe the the power gets on sooner than. Maybe things get marginally better fast enough to keep it from devolving into a situation where there's actual civil unrest. I don't know. I mean, I think, you know, I, I, I've been to Puerto Rico. I think I think it's a different conversation if we're talking about San Juan, yeah, which no is a question. real city with real infrastructure, right. and the rest of the island, which is not. Okay. All right. Next up, the, uh, the PPG. PPG. Sp- speaking of parts of the world with lo- with a lack of, nece- of civilian infrastructure, so that, that's the best I can do for yeah. <laughs> So the, the critical backdrop here is is to recall that the Obama administration, um, though it maintained the the Bush administration positions on the legal foundations, both domestically and internationally, 
for counterterrorism efforts involving the use of lethal force, including in places like Yemen, Somalia, Pakistan, that is, places outside of the bigger footprint operations in Afghanistan and then later Iraq and Syria. It maintained the legal foundations, but was at great pains and, and, and drew a lot of attention to the policy structure that it developed uh, for what they called uh, the use of lethal force outside of areas of active hostilities. And so the idea is we will, if we think desirable, use the full range of law of armed conflict authorities in actual combat zones, but in the diplomatically more sensitive, domestically more sensitive, more sensitive in every way, categories of locations where it's not uh, active hostilities, where the use of force is, is highly episodic and, and often, though not always, but often will be based on uh, unmanned aerial vehicles. It'll be drone strikes. Um, there should be further constraints, even though the, the law, as the administration put it, the law didn't require it, but as a matter of policy, they were going to create all these new rules. Um, this is summarized in this presidential policy guidance document, or PPG. PPG. And, and there's a lot. There's a lot more to it. We're, we're skipping all sorts of complexities. But the important part are a handful of rules that were said to be applicable as a matter of policy direction. Uh, one was don't attack unless there's a near certainty that there will be no civilian casualties, which is a different standard, of course, than the proportionality rule that governs if you're just under the law of armed conflict. Uh, so there's that, and of course there's. Of course, huge quibbles about how, how all of these were actually implemented, but just right now we're just identifying what the nominal rules are. So first, near certainty of no civilian casualties. Uh, secondly, Steve, correct me if I'm wrong, capture not feasible. Yep. So strong preference for capture. Don't don't strike unless capture is not feasible. Of course, begs the question, what do you mean by feasible? But at um, least at least it's there. At least it's a, at least it's a claim that there's a rule albeit policy-based, but a rule uh, requiring you to, to make that case internally. Right, sort of uh, an, an exhaustion requirement, however weak. Exactly. Uh, critically here, um, a language about how you're not supposed to strike at all unless there's a, quote, continuing imminent threat to U.S. lives. Now, if you read that for all it's worth in the way those words are normally used, there's two different constraining elements. Um, Imminence implies to the ordinary person an immediacy, a temporal immediacy to the threat. And secondly, the threat has to run specifically to U.S. lives, not just other lives that are out there, but U.S. lives in particular. Um, I'll have comments in a moment about whether they've ever really been quite constrained the way that that sounds like, but you see what it sounds like. There's a fourth element I want to highlight here that I'm not, it's not entirely clear to me whether this flows directly from the PPG as such. I think it does, but I'm not 100% sure. In any event, whether from the PPG or elsewhere, a requirement that in these scenarios that there be decision-making approving particular strikes back in Washington through an interagency process of sorts. Now, that, I think, is probably the single most constraining part of the PPG as compared to the others, which sound like they'd be constraining. I think in practice, having that interagency battle over whether the case has been made in particular cases, that's where the action was. So it's it's been reported widely, especially from Charlie Savage and Eric Schmidt, um, that Trump is poised. He has recommendations on the desk to, this is remarkable, I think, keep the near certainty of no civilian harm rule, but uh, first and foremost, get rid of the requirement in these locations that decision-making actually run back to Washington, go through an interagency process. In practical terms, that means for the DOD strikes, the commanders in the, in the, in the combatant command area, 
they'll decide it. And for the CIA, they'll decide it. That's a huge development. And I think people are alarmed about that. Also dropping the requirement that there be a continuing imminent threat to U.S. lives, thus opening the door towards strikes on, you know, that say Al-Shabaab foot soldiers who you don't necessarily link to any particular threat. Um, and I think, you know, so when I first saw this, I was really struck by the preservation of the civilian damages component. Um, it's worth emphasizing, and I've tried to emphasize this online, that you got to be realistic about how the PPG was really being used. So first and foremost, when there were circumstances where maintaining the PPG might have been inconvenient, especially because of the desire to attack what you might call foot soldiers, um, the Obama administration had not hesitated, for example, in Libya, to simply declare for a set period of time a particular geographic area, in that case, around CERT in Libya, declare it to be an, a, a temporary zone of active hostilities. You just toggle it on and off. And, and that's, of course, something you can do with a policy constraint. You can't do with a legal constraint, not so easily. So let, let's not overread how constraining it was in that respect. Secondly, there were, there were at least one instance, probably two instances. Uh, I'm thinking of the Rasso camp strike in Somalia, and then also a, uh, another Libyan strike that came at the very tail end of the Obama administration um, after it CERT and its status as an area of active hostilities had been, had been turned off again, so the PPG was fully applying where uh, significant scale airstrikes were conducted on a camp, a training camp of Islamic State fighters in the, in the Libya case, Al-Shabaab fighters in the Somalia case. Um, and you could, you could make you know, arguments about how indirectly this was, of course, to protect the U.S. personnel who might eventually be attacked by those forces. Uh, there might even be more concrete intelligence showing that it was a far more of a true imminent threat to U.S. forces than it seems like at first blush. But it also looked a lot like a, a, a pretty stretched conception of continuing an imminent threat to U.S. forces or even to allied forces where we seem pretty willing to use force in a PPG setting that didn't really seem to quite fit the narrowing uh, rhetoric of the PPG. So the question is, if Trump adopts the new version of the PPG, um, is, it, is it meet the new boss same as the old boss? And, and that doesn't mean you have to like it or dislike it, but just is it really a break in continuity? So I, I guess I have two big reactions, right? The first is I don't know, um, because as was true with the Obama PPG, a lot will depend on how it's toggled, right? And yeah. so, you know, there's going to be a real question of sort of voluntary compliance, right? Um, and the second is, you know, I, I mean, the, there's, there's sort of a, a normative commitment to adhering to the PPG, that I think we assume the Obama administration had, right? And I don't know enough about sort of the Trump administration's approach in this field to know if they're going to share that commitment, right? Like, like the Obama, yes, with regard to areas like CERT, right? The Obama administration came up with arguments for how to trigger the PPG on and off, but they didn't just sort of say, oh, never mind, the PPG is, is going to get our way, no more PPG. It was still doing more than zero work. Yeah, I, you know, so I think that's kind of an interesting question. You know, what was the real practical constraint of the PPG? You know, from the outside, we can imagine there might have been any number of instances where a strike that someone wanted to conduct didn't occur because state or somebody else made a sufficient argument that under the PPG, though not the law of armed conflict, it wouldn't fly. And that was the final decision. I'm sure some of that must have happened. And we don't know how those same debates will play out in this new context. That's why I think the thing that really matters here actually is eliminating the interagency top level review back in Washington and leaving uh, the decision to be made in channels that won't actually necessarily have the same players at the table. Right. And then the question is whether as a result, right, decisions 
decisions that might have gotten vetoed, right, right. on the up the food yeah. chain under the Obama administration, you now don't have that yeah. veto gate. It's got to be the case that the answer is, yeah, there will be some of that. What's interesting is how much of it. Now, no one might say, look, if there's even one such decision, that's one such decision too much. Maybe. Um, I, I think it's it's a marginal change at, at the level of assessing this as a system. It could be a marginal change. We'll find out though, right? If there start being if there start being drone strikes on a much more rapid scale in places that have not had a lot. And by the way, you know, Yemen's had a lot. Right. Somalia has had a lot. Libya's had a lot. Right. If we start seeing it on a much more uh, significant scale in those places, or very interestingly, if it emerges in new places, if it starts happening somewhere else in the Sahel region. Um, that's going to be substantial, right? Too. And so, and so, I guess my, you know, we've talked, we talked, I think, a couple months ago, right, on the podcast about what to make of some of the sort of scattershot reports about uses of force under the Trump administration, yeah. and whether it was really suggesting a a real change in emphasis and focus, right? Right. And it seems to me that um, the 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 PPG developments suggest that yes, there actually might be some coordinated organizational shift. Again, though, the question is going to be, how does that operationalize? One important part in Charlie and Eric's story in the New York Times is noting that insofar as there's going to be the use of lethal force in a new country location that has not previously been the location, and if they're going to go to fill in the blank a a place uh, somewhere in the Sahel region, there does still have to be, at least as the initial decision-making process, there still has to be an interagency back in Washington decision-making process before that country gets gets on the cleared list. So that that is an important wrinkle. And I, I think part of the story here is it's not necessarily the case you would expect the Trump administration to have had those levels of constraint. Even if one thinks these are not going to be that constraining, this may be more than some of us suspected would be the case. Yeah. So I guess, you know, I, I feel like all we're saying today is stay tuned. Watch this space. Yeah. All right. Uh, Although you, this, this is just our ploy to like get people to keep coming yes, back to our listen podcast. to further episodes. Seriously. Okay, so now you were in D.C. yesterday. I was in D.C. Um, can you can you give us sort of a thumbnail sketch of what the stakes were and and what seemed to, to matter? In so these so just to frame everything. So so this whole fight is about um, Bob Mueller, right? So Bob Mueller was appointed by Deputy Attorney General Rosenstein um, as special counsel for the Russia investigation. Um, after the president made some sort of threatening statements about Mueller, about the investigation, and about maybe getting rid of the people responsible, there started this sort of groundswell in Congress to figure out some way to protect Mueller and to make it a little bit harder for him to be removed, at least for improper reasons. And we can, we should, I want to put a pin in improper reasons because there's an interesting question about what those are. Um, so this led to the introduction of a pair of bills, a pair of bipartisan bills. Um, one, the lead sponsors of which are Lindsey Graham um, and Cory Booker, right? Not exactly yeah, the most obvious bedfellows. Um, and one, the lead sponsors of which are Tom Tillis from North Carolina and Chris Coons from Delaware. Again, yeah. not the most yeah. obvious bedfellows. Um, and the bills are actually remarkably modest. What the bills basically do, the existing special counsel regulation, which is 28 CFR Part 600, has a four-cause removal provision. Um, it's 28 CFR section 600.7 subsection D, um, which says that the special counsel can be removed only by the personal action of the attorney general and only for misconduct, dereliction of duty, violation of Dutch DOJ regulations, or other good cause. Right. So it's a okay. it's a classical four, yeah, four cause, cause removal constraint. So what would they change about that? Um, nothing. 
Um, What the bills would do is the bills would guarantee that if there were a dispute about whether the attorney general had the requisite cause, there could be litigation. And so both bills create an express cause of action for the... Graham, yeah. Well, so Graham Booker in its current form, it's the attorney general who actually initiates litigation, but they're going to change that. Um, both bills are going to create a cause of action for the special counsel if he or she objects yeah. to contest a removal decision before a three-judge district court. Um, and the just for our listeners, technical Fed court's nerdy point, the reason why it's a three-judge district court is twofold. One, um, three-judge district courts, which are two district judges and a circuit judge, less likely to have an outlier judge. Two, automatic mandatory appeal to the Supreme Court. There you um, go. Right, not discretionary. Right. So okay. it's, it's faster, it's less likely to get an outlier judge, and it goes right to the Supreme Court. Is there any doubt about whether they can create such a mechanism? So that's the fight. Right. Um, so I, I, I stress that. So the difference in the bills, by the way, is when the review happens. Graham Booker, the review is before removal, right? The attorney general says, I am going to fire you, and yeah. the special counsel gets to object. That seems, if you're going to have a mechanism like this, like, Maybe that's the way to right. do it. Tills Coons is after you sue and you seek reinstatement. Uh, okay, so put me down for if you're going to do this, do it before they fire the person. You've read my testimony. I actually didn't. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, so the the hearing yesterday was the Senate Judiciary Committee having a hearing on these two bills. Yep. There were four witnesses. Two were um, very pro these bills. Um, I was one of them, and Professor Eric Posner from the University of Chicago mm-hmm. Law School. Also, again, strange bedfellow. Yeah, that's right. I don't recall you two being on the same side of too many issues. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting times. And then against? Um, and against were um, Akil Amar from Yale Law School, my Fed courts professor, um, and um, fr- John Duffy from the University of Virginia School of Law. So I, I love the imagery. It's, it's a tag team match. And you got uh, Vladik and Posner versus uh, Duffy Amar, and Amar and Duffy. So, and, and, you know, John's objections, I think, were actually mostly drafting and actually are largely fixable okay. through amendments I won't bore the readers But Akil had a real Akil objection. has a big objection, which is that this is... So Akil's objection has two layers to it. First, Morrison versus Olson, right? The sure. 1988 Supreme Court decision that upheld the independent counsel statute is wrongly decided and is no longer good law. That's the first part. And second, these bills run afoul of what really is the good law after Morrison versus Olson. These bills would do the same thing the independent counsel statute did and therefore are unconstitutional for all the reasons Justice Scalia identified yeah. in his Morrison so is, dissent. Is, so is it fair to sum it up for, for the listeners who aren't in the weeds on this? Could you could you kind of loosely characterize this as the objection that the executive power is unitary? Yep. You can't unduly insulate from presidential control the president, as the ultimate law enforcement executive officer, you yep. can't have a law enforcement executive officer that insulated from his control. But but wouldn't that argument apply nearly as much, if not more so, to the status quo? I mean, why is this further check that much worse than the status so quo? So I think Akil is of the view that 600.7D is unenforceable. Okay, so, that, so the answer is no. The status quo is also enforceable. So making it more enforceable just exacerbates our current problem. Exactly. Now, I think – so – not to put, what, what I hope folks have taken away from my summary, which hopefully made sense, um, is that this provision is so much more modest than the independent counsel, right? So the independent yeah. counsel was appointed by a three-judge special division of the D.C. Circuit, yeah. could only be removed with the permission of those three judges. Yeah. His jurisdiction was controlled by the, you know, was not controlled by the attorney general. Yeah. No, the whole idea of the special counsel was to not run afoul of those same constraints, which much more directly invaded the province, the constitutional province of the president. Right. And so... So Akil's point is, if you are a pure Unitarian, it doesn't matter 
that the new bill is so much more modest, right? Because as Scalia says in his Morrison dissent, um, the question is not whether Congress can take some of the of the president's executive power. The yeah. question is whether we can take any of it. But on, on this logic, isn't it a slippery slope towards saying that no one can be protected even by in the executive branch by even having a four cause standard? You should be it should all be at will. So from this top is to bottom. this is my objection, right? My objection is if you are a pure Unitarian then civil service regulations are unconstitutional, exactly. right? Because even now, Akil's response, um, someone, it was either Al Franken or Chris Coons, um, pushed him on this yesterday. Um, Akil's response is civil servants are usually not officers of the United States, they're employees. But he's conflating. The, so the officers of the United States versus employees matters for purposes of the appointments clause. Yeah, right? but not for removals. But Well, so removal is not in the appointments clause. Removal right, is a right. general separation so, of powers right, principle. Right, right. And if, like Justice Scalia, you believe that the president must control all executive power, there are plenty of civil servants in the executive branch who exercise executive power. And indeed, isn't it odd to say that the president has more leeway to fire the most senior people and less ability to control the, uh, the line? Well, that's Akil's point. Um, right, and my response is no, because the lower people, right, are are exercising much more carefully circumscribed species of executive power. I mean, listen, the thing about the special counsel that is so markedly different from the independent counsel is the special counsel has very little control over the scope of his investigation, right, over the staffing, over the budget. He right. needs the, the attorney, attorney general. Got that control. And yeah. as long as that's true, right, the only thing that's really hindering the president here, besides politics, the only legal right. constraint is the removal requirement. And once you say that once you say that it's unconstitutional to have four cause removal for this guy, I don't know why you therefore must conclude that every single person who works for the president has to be at will. So I, I find your position pretty persuasive. I also find it extremely unlikely it, to the point of it ain't going to happen that this actually becomes a law since the president's going to veto it unless unless there were practical circumstances involving action already taken against Mueller, Mueller that has blown up and created a groundswell of hostility to the White House that actually somehow finally that's the thing that tips two-thirds majorities in both houses against the administration, at which point they could override. Uh, but there, at that point, we'd have we'd be well on our way towards the much bigger constitutional crisis. Well, so, so, right. So then the question is, so why have this hearing, right? So, yeah. so well, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. No, no, no. Yeah. I, I actually think the hearing was useful. And indeed, I mean, it was, I think it was remarkably substantive. I mean, it was, you know, I, I'm not encouraging folks to go and watch all two hours and 15 minutes, um, right? But I mean, you had 15 of, 15 of the 20 members of the Judiciary Committee showing up. That's right. good. You had 14 right. of them who actually asked questions. Um, well, and of course, even if it can't be brought to bear on this current situation, sooner or later, we might want to have this in place. Right. That's the lesson of the current moment. Right? Well, and so and John Duffy, I mean, so not Akil, but Duffy actually thought that like it would be much. Duffy's biggest constitutional objection was doing this to an ongoing investigation and that a forward looking yeah. bill would raise far fewer concerns. Yeah, yeah. OK, interesting. Um, listen, I think the politics of this are. You know, there are there are the votes to get this out of committee. Sure. Right? I mean, the judiciary is already 11 to 9. Assuming all nine Democrats would vote for it, all you need is Graham and Tillis. You have them. I don't doubt that. Right. Um, I don't. The question is, what's going to motivate the Republicans to move on this? And I think the answer is nothing until the next episode where Trump threatens Sessions and or Rosenstein and or Mueller. Right. right. So it may never come. It may never come or you know, when, not if, the first indictments come down. Um, this is going to be really important. And having had this hearing and having done yeah. this groundwork is going to make it easier Agreed. for the Senate to move faster. Right. So I, I agree that it was worth doing. I'll uh, say, that last, yeah. last on this, um, I was really surprised. The, the one real surprise to me in the hearing was the number of Republican members who 
in the same comments, both one um, thought it just thought it just beyond dispute that Mueller's investigation should be allowed to go, should be allowed to continue and flourish and go in whatever direction it needs that, to go. That surprised you? Yes. Yeah. Um, okay. Given given what you see in the media, oh uh, yeah, okay. right, right. Um, and two, um, how committed they all were, right, to the notion that um, we ought to get to the bottom of this. Now, I had an, I had an exchange with Senator Kennedy from Louisiana, um, where he asked the witnesses, like, how would you grade Congress's performance <laughs> thus far? Um, and, and I think we we all all the witnesses tried to make the point that hey, Congress, yes, this is a good idea. You know, oh, yeah. well, sorry, two of us agreed it was a good idea, but we all agreed that Congress can and perhaps should do a lot more on its own using its own powers, right? As opposed, and, that, and that the bill is just one part of a much broader story about oversight. So what grade did you give? Incomplete. Incomplete. Nice. Although, although I flunked Nunes. Did you, did you say that on the record? I didn't say I flunked him. I said I, said I have grave concerns so about did, statements that the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee there you has go. made. The, it's not the same grade for uh, the Senate in the House. Correct. Which is easy to say when you're sitting in the Senate. Sure is. <laughs> All right. Um, so then the very last legal thing we had was some travel ban developments. Yep. We're up to, we're so up to 3.0. A, as predicted. Um, as <laughs> you heard predicted. it here first. Yeah. They, so the, the Supreme Court has taken uh, the case off the oral argument calendar and asked for briefing, I believe, on the effect of the, the newest. Uh, the new proclamation. The new, the new proclamation. So the proclamation is supposed to be a permanent state of affairs, not a time-limited one. They've, they've added in Venezuela and uh, North Korea to sort of gesture towards it, you know, underscore the it's idea. It's not that, a Muslim ban. It's not a Muslim ban. Um, so... We can Look, see, we've added two whole countries that aren't Muslim majority countries. In the interest of time, let's kind of cut to the heart of the matter. In terms, by the way, for all that yeah. North Korean immigration, well, for all the North Korean immigration, that is a problem. I know. Um, what is the most likely future course of litigation? Even though it seems clear, so it's no, it's not going to be on the calendar anytime soon. Is this going to now start over from scratch, or can it continue? And, and what's going to happen with the vacature question that you had drawn attention to previously? Yeah, so I mean, I think the real question, there, there are two big questions, right? And, and they're related. The first is, what does the Supreme Court do? And the second is, what happens after that? Yeah. Um, so the Supreme Court has granted certiorari, right? The Supreme Court currently has the, you know, IRAP Maryland injunction and the Hawaii um, and the Hawaii Hawaii injunction. It, but in this it. new round of briefing, isn't the Solicitor General going to argue for digging this right? D- dismiss it as improvidently. No, the, no, no, no. The SG is going to argue for vacateur and remand. Right. Okay. So, so play so the, that out for me. So here's the: if you're the government, you have these two bad circuit court opinions, right? Not about this proclamation. Right. So they, okay, I see. So they don't want to leave that in place. They need it. They need the court to stay engaged. Right. So they want the court to say, "Oh, the facts have totally changed. This is now a totally different case. The district court should get the first bite at the apple, um, and it should be free of the lower court rulings on the earlier iteration." Right. And the main alternative is what? The alternative is uh, a dig. What you said: yeah. dismissal is improvidently granted, um, which would leave the lower court opinions intact, right, insofar as they're applied to the March executive order. And if there are plaintiffs out there, including but not limited to the respondents in these cases, who want to challenge the new proclamation, they need to bring new litigation that does so. So if I'm understanding this right, that you're not likely to see either of the main parties actually arguing for trying to somehow come to grips right away with the new new proclamation. That The only question, it's going to have to start over from scratch somewhere. The question is, will there be the existing circuit precedent to draw on or not? So you know, I, I don't know if the challengers who are the response in the Supreme Court are going, they might, you know, 
they're in a sticky, they're in a bit of a sticky wicket procedurally, yeah. right? Because they might actually say, we have no problem if the Supreme Court wants to decide this now. Yeah. Um, listen, I mean, it's just the Supreme Court, as as they're fond of saying, is a court of review, not first view, right? There's going to be zero appetite on the part of the justices to decide about the new proclamation without any yeah. record, without any lower court decisions. And so I think the question is whether the parties accept that as a fait accompli, yeah. and then the whole fight becomes whether they just dismiss or vacate. Right. Um, and we'll see in the briefs that are going to be filed. All right. So watch this space. But either way, right? I mean, you know, keep in mind that doesn't mean we're done, right? So either way, either these cases or new cases go to the lower courts. Oh, absolutely. No, there's no question this saga is going to continue. And now it no longer has the specter of temporariness in the proclamation itself hanging over the litigation. And now we're going to have a big fight about, you know, national security justifications that, you know, may or may not make sense. Yeah, well, it, it, to a certain extent, from our narrow point of view for the show, it's going to come to focus more and more on the issues that are actually within our Correct. scope. Which is, which is right, what what kind of evidence suffices, yeah. right, for these kinds of programs to be put in place, and what role do the courts play in reviewing the executive branch's national security assertions. Which has always been an interesting topic, but we've never really had a scenario where there was this level of discord and distrust surrounding the executive branch's invocation of of the national security justification. Totally. So it'll be interesting. All, All right, right, so that's that's the legal news. All right, everyone else, click. Mm. Frivolity time. Yes, all right. So I didn't watch the new Star Trek. Star Trek Discovery. And I don't want you to, to expose too much to me because I am going to watch it. But I want to know, should I? Maybe maybe you should go ahead and just tell me what happens if it's terrible. So I, I will confess. Here, here's my, my, my sort of one-minute take on, on the two-part season premiere or series premiere of Star Trek Discovery. Um, about 40 minutes in, to the first episode, I texted my brother-in-law, who I think, as I mentioned last week, is going to be ho- is the host of the after show, After okay. Trek, um, because he's cool and famous and smart and has all the creative talents that I don't. Um, hello, Matt Myra. You don't listen to this podcast, but shout out to you anyway. <laughs> um, and, you know, I texted him and I said, does this get better? <laughs> <laughs> ouch, ouch. Uh, well, he didn't make the show. Um, and and Matt, Matt sort of, I think, very, very correctly responded, you know, it's a cold open. Right, um, and so you got to sort of you know wait for it to wait, wait yeah. for the cold open to finish. Yeah, um, it's different from prior Star Trek pilots in that it is. Mu- Remember the Battlestar Galactica miniseries, the, sure. the four part miniseries that launched the yeah. reboot. Right, right. It's so more it's like, like that. Interesting. Where the sort of pilot is not the first episode of like a season, but is like the pre the prologue. Yeah, where there's some sort of self contained backstory. Yeah that's going to be sort of critical to understanding the narrative, but that is not actually the narrative itself. Interesting. So it may, it doesn't necessarily have to be as good as the series ultimately will have to be, but it does have to get you hooked. And, and, and I will say that, that, that for as, as down as I was at the 40-minute mark, right, by the end of the second episode, I was intrigued. Okay, what, what was making you unimpressed with it? Was it the characters were not compelling? Was it that there were uh, either too, mu- too much divergence from Star Trek canon or too much adherence? The, the, you know, the canon, the canon part isn't yet a big problem for me. Um, the real problem was the characters just didn't seem that interesting. The, the characters seemed very superficial. Mm. Um, and this is a really stupid complaint, but the sort of visuals just weren't that like. They were, I don't think it's stupid at all. Like, I think it's that very the, CGI. The G whiz elements of Star Trek have always been part of the appeal of the show. Um, and if it, and you can imagine, especially knowing it's not going to be on the network, it's going to be streamed. Is this going to be sort of on the cheap? 
a little bit. So I don't know. And, and, and for the and you know and presumably you're going to spend more on the pilot than you are on the sort of live episodes. Yeah, yeah. So you know those are sort of mild complaints. The plot sort of took a turn for the much more interesting. I think in the second hour yeah. because if you could, you know. As someone who didn't know anything going in, it became clear in the second hour what was like that. That this is a prologue. Yeah. All right, so this could be this could be an example like we've all encountered with novels where you plow in the first chapter or so and you start thinking, I don't know if I'm down with this, but if you stay with it, I, I mean, remember the first scene of Game of Thrones, right? And the first and the first part of, of oh, yeah. the first book, right? It's the it's the north of the wall. It's the three randos north of the wall, and you're like, what the hell's going on? Right, I, you know, but okay, so but that's a good point of contrast. So that that scene that launches uh, Game of Thrones in the original book, and and I think the show and was the show. faithful to that. It was exciting. You knew you had some idea, like okay, so there's drama. There's definitely an element of the supernatural here. That was scary and exciting. Did it have just sort of on its own as a standalone product? Was there good drama at least by the second hour? It was okay. Yeah, it was okay. I mean, it was it was a fairly predictable sort of um, fight. And 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 the one and the one part and then there's one piece of it where the, there's basically the critical plot moment is when a character is when the main character does something that just makes no sense based on what you know about her to that point, suggesting um, either bad writing or there's more to the character. Well, so that's 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 one that's, that's what remains to be seen. All so, right, cool. Well, so stay tuned. Speaking of uh, speaking of things that at first blush look a certain way, oh. there's a scandal engulfing college basketball. So right as we sat down to record this, it looks like Louisville has fired both head coach Rick Pitino and its athletic director. If it's that bad, there's no way there's not going to be NCAA sanctions falling behind this one. But and the whole but the whole how point, many programs are going to go down here? Well, so the whole point, but you know, I I am a I am an avid watcher and listener uh, of Pardon the Interruption, and I think Will Bond made this point yesterday. I mean, it's the whole point that this is the FBI and not the NCAA tells you tells everything you, you need sure. to know both about how big a deal this is and how lame the NCAA is. Exactly. No, that doesn't surprise me. Right. Um, this this will you know this is going to be extraordinary and the, the widespread nature of it and the federal nature of it that's really incredible. Yes. Now the real question I think so Ramona Shelburne I think made this point yesterday. Um, you know, blue chips is not fiction. Right, <laughs> right. The, the the Shaquille O'Neal, um, Penny. Who, oh, who are the other two players? I don't remember. Oh, I think it's like Penny Hardaway and and I don't remember who the white guy was. Anyway, the the corruption involved in the pipeline of talent that runs from uh, you know from their 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 early teen years when they get identified to getting people to the right colleges and then getting to the right shoe brand and and the right agent. There's so much money at stake. It'd, it'd be surprising, I suppose, if it weren't otherwise. Do you, you know, how far do you think this is going to spill out? Will it have any far. kind of systemic effect on, you know, how we approach paying athletes? Will this intersect with that issue? So I mean, we're right. We're back to the real problem, which is, you know, college athletics. Right. They're they're ma- colleges, universities make tons of money, um, and and the athletes themselves get scholarships, and then get out as quickly as they can when they have a clear shot at going to the next level and they make millions at that point, but only at that point. So uh, it's too early to say, obviously, what's going to happen here. Um, do you see anything else we can say about the story at this point? Um, that Louisville fired Patino and the AD already, right, as opposed to we're conducting an internal investigation, we have to look into this. I mean, this is the beginning of a whole lot of shoes dropping in a whole lot of athletic programs across the country. And I guess another thing to look out for, will it spill beyond basketball? Yep. Yep. So anyway, that's that's big news. Um, other big news, Dwayne Wade is a Cleveland Cavalier, Bobby. Is that big news? That's no. the interesting question. No. Yeah. Uh, I think people get excited about that, but I 
I would be, you know, wouldn't mind having him in my second unit on the Spurs. It'd be okay. Um, I, I'd really be worried about how his defense is at this point. And yeah, but I mean, I mean, when you think about the Cleveland Cavs roster for next year, I mean, we should just skip the season. Like, let's just have the the Warriors and the Cavs play forty seven times and have it be a best of forty seven oh, for, for second place because the Spurs are going to win it all. How'd that work last need, year? Need I remind you that the Spurs were up by 21 points in game one, crushing the Warriors at home when somebody stepped under Kawhi <laughs> Leonard, caused an injury that meant we no longer had our point guard or our MVP candidate player. There's no there's no reason to assume the Spurs would have won that, but there's no reason to assume they would have lost. And, and all those, those and all those big talent, big big ticket players, you said were going to come to San Antonio in the offseason. How'd that work out? I don't know if I said they were definitely going to. I certainly <laughs> wanted some, but you know, I, I will ro- I'll take my chances with the 61 win team that was beating the eventual champions at home when they all got right, injured. You're hearing it here first, Warriors, Cavs. Um, but uh, I will say no, the no. the best NBA news of the week. Was the trade of Carmelo no, Anthony. Anthony? All right, so my my days of wandering in the desert as a Knicks fan are over. Edis Cantor will save us. Um, you know, I, I assume you're happy to see the last of Carmelo Anthony. I would have paid for the Thunder to take him. Like well, we actually they, they got, sort of did. <laughs> we, we we got players back. Yeah. I actually, you know, and Enes Kanter is a, a useful player. We'll see. Uh, has to be careful about uh, going to Turkey and going abroad. Apparently, well, you know, but. New York, New York versus when you're a foreign national, New York versus Oklahoma City. It's a yeah. Well, I don't know. Oklahoma City is a pretty nifty place, but uh, so will it work in Oklahoma City? No, <laughs> no. There's no way. If if Russell Westbrook couldn't make it work with Kevin Durant, who actually is not incredibly an incredibly selfish ball hog who has to shoot 35 times a game, how's he going to make it work with Carmelo? They're going to play with with multiple basketballs on the court. Ah, that's a, a tried and true strategy. Where 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 Westbrook, Paul George, and Carmelo each bring a ball up at the same time on each possession. It sure does seem crowded, doesn't it? Um, I, I, the NBA, it's like it's like it's like college football, right? There are big, there are power conferences, the, there are power teams, and there's everybody else. Well, the, the Western Conference is so comically stacked at this point, and I I'd be whoever emerges from the West. You never know in a seven game series, but I, one thing I like about the NBA playoff, playoff format is seven games. It's hard for something really right. irregular flukes. to happen. You don't get flukes it, you, occasionally, but it's hard, and it so. really requires injury. You know, like when Kawhi Leonard got hurt. <laughs> So, on that note... Be, beat that horse, Bobby. Yeah, I will keep beating it. What else have I got? Uh, not 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 a title last year. No. Fortunately, we have a few from before. Yeah. I love the one we got from New York, by the way. That was a fine one, that first one. <laughs> well, as, as, as our listeners can hear me roll my eyes, we'll just say, stay safe out there, everybody, and we'll talk to you next week. Adios.